You know, this past year has been anything but normal. If the last six months have taught us anything, it's how fragile life is. I want you to think about that for a moment. Since back in February, March, we have watched over 150,000 Americans lose their life to this virus. That's almost three times what was lost during the Vietnam War. I want you to think about that for a moment. And that's in addition to the literally tens and hundreds of thousands of people who have, who have spent, you know, days, uh, weeks on ventilators, you know, fighting for their lives. I have an aunt who, she's been uh, ill from the COVID-19 now for about five weeks talked with my uncle yesterday and, and he said hopefully she'll go home sometime later this week. I've got a first cousin who just left the hospital after having suffered through the virus. I mean, it's beginning to touch people in our families, in our lives. But not only does it reveal just how fragile our health is, think about how fragile our economy is. You know, if you'd gone back to January and asked anyone, how's the economy doing? Everybody would say, boy, it's great. Never been better. Unemployment, all-time record lows. I mean, people have got jobs. The stock market is breaking record after record after record. I mean, economy couldn't be any better than it is right now. And I don't know if you saw what happened, you know, this last week. As we had the largest drop in GDP in the nation's history. Unemployment at, at just, you know, sky high, record levels almost. And we're asking ourselves, what happened? And once again, it tells us just how fragile our economy. And then you look at what's going on in our nation as well as the world and you realize just how fragile life really is. You know, last week we were looking at Matthew chapter 6 and we heard the text read this morning during our welcome that beautiful prayer of Jesus in trying to teach us how to, how do we pray to God? Near the end of that prayer, you have a very important line of where Jesus says, when you pray, pray this. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there's something very important. We mentioned this last week, but you need to get this in your head. When, when Jesus said for us to pray, don't lead us into temptation, he's not suggesting that God would ever tempt us to do evil. That's not what that word temptation means there. You see, it's a word that's used very different than the normal word for temptation. The Greek word is parisma. And parisma literally means don't lead us into the difficult trials. The difficult testing that life can sometimes show us. And if ever we need to be praying that, we need to be praying that right now. Because you see, it's in the midst of testing that Satan has his best opportunity to attack us. And that's why Jesus said, pray, don't lead us into testing, but instead deliver us from the evil one. Well, today in our series called His Story, we're looking at an example of this concept of severe testing. We're in Mark chapter 1, and it may come across as a very strange text 
to be used in this series. But it's really not. Uh, it, it plays an incredible role in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have a Bible, turn over to it. I want to begin reading. Our text actually begins in verse 23. But I want to begin reading in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then you have the text that you see up on the screen of an event that happens there in the synagogue in Capernaum. I've been to the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, it's probably as large as maybe this first two sections of the auditorium you see right here. And, and, and we know it's the synagogue from the first century, at least the foundation of it, because it dates back to the time of Jesus. And, and to sit in that synagogue, and by the way, in synagogues you would sit along the outer end of the uh, synagogue and then you might sit on the floor if you didn't have room to sit on the sides. And notice what takes place. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's very important that you understand what's going on in Mark's gospel. You know, we have four gospels. And, and as best we can determine, Mark's was the first one written. And Mark is Peter's gospel. The church fathers told us that. Mark wrote down the memoirs of Peter. And that's why Mark becomes kind of this quintessential foundational gospel of the New Testament. And in this gospel, Mark's remembering Peter's stories, you know, as the Holy Spirit is guiding him. And for some reason, for Peter, this story here is an important story to begin his gospel with. I mean, Jesus has literally come out of the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and now he goes to Capernaum and he encounters this demon. And the demon asks a very simple question to Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? I think so often as we're doing our, maybe our daily Bible reading, maybe we're reading through the Bible one year, we get to this text and unfortunately we read through it way too fast. And we just need to realize that when this question is asked by these unclean spirits, notice the plural here, have you come to destroy us? Oftentimes there would be more than one spirit that would inhabit people. But the answer to that question for Peter was a resounding, yes, that's exactly why I have come. It's to destroy you and everything related to you. The people are amazed. Jesus responds to the spirit, be quiet, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. I can't imagine witnessing that scene. I mean, imagine a church service where something like this happens. I suspect we'd have quite a few number of people exiting out the back door. And I suspect maybe they did in the synagogue there that day. But the people's response was amazing. They all looked around and said, what is this? A new teaching They've never seen anything like this. And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, 
and they obey Him? Now once again, there's an important question here. Just as the Spirit says, have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. The question that they ask is, what is this? What's going on here? And the answer is very simple. Something called spiritual warfare. You see, when you, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark, again, written first. Matthew and Luke both come along, and what they do is they take Mark's gospel and they expand it. Matthew expands it for a Jewish audience. You see it as you're reading through the text. I mean, he doesn't explain Jewish you know, uh, traditions and, and patterns of behavior. I mean, he just assumes they know that. Luke is writing, on the other hand, to Gentiles. He's writing a defense of the gospel to the Gentile world. And so he takes a very different route. But both of them, when they come to the story of Jesus and this battle with Satan, both of them take Mark's gospel and they expand it. You see, if you go back just a few verses earlier in Mark chapter 1, it simply says that Jesus went out and was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And that's it. Jesus went out and was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But both Matthew and Mark says, oh no, no, it was a lot more than that. Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus was led by the Spirit. He, he had just been baptized. The Spirit of God had just come upon him in the form of a dove. Luke will say he drove him out into the wilderness. Use a very different term from this term, led. But then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And it's on. It's on. Just out of curiosity, if, if you'd raise your hand, if you fasted at least one day, would you raise your hand? Okay, so probably about half the people in here. You know, if you fasted for at least one meal, skip one meal, would you raise your hand? Oh yeah, okay, we got all of us in that one, you know. I, I, I don't know about you, the most I've ever fasted is a day and a half. Uh, fasting is hard. Uh, you know, that first meal is pretty easy. That second meal gets a little tougher. And then the morning you wake up after you've not eaten for 24 hours, you're really starting to feel weak. Imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And yet for Jesus, what was going on is that he knew that there was this battle that was coming. A battle royale of where he was basically going to go up against the accuser himself. We call him Satan. And you know the story. I mean, Satan comes to him after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course he's hungry. And he says, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy saying, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, again, we read that way too fast. We read it as if it happened just like that. And I can't imagine what it was like as Jesus was staring down the accuser himself. They'll go to the highest point of the temple. And there Satan will say to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written. You see, Satan can quote scripture too. And he quotes from the Psalms about God's protective care of the coming Messiah. And Jesus' response is, again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Don't put the Lord your God to a test. And then he takes him up to a high mountain. 
and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instance. All of them. I mean, if you can imagine seeing at that time, because at that time you would have had the great empire of China, the empires down in India. You would have had, you know, Egypt down to the uh, southwest uh, of where Jesus is. And then, of course, over into the Americas, you would have had the Mayas and others at that time. And here's all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, I'll give all of them to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And, of course, Jesus' response is, again, from the book of Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You know, in many ways, what you saw there in, in both Matthew and Mark, just, just referred to briefly in the Gospel, excuse me, of Luke, and referred to briefly in the Gospel of Mark, is this opening huge battle. A battle very similar to some that perhaps was fought during World War II. I mean, a battle that was going to determine the course of the entire war. Luke would end his temptation narrative with these words. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, Jesus, you've won this one. But I'll be back. But you turn back to Mark's gospel, and Mark's gospel is very different. You see, for Peter, it was not these big battles, even though he'll finish with a big one at the crucifixion scene. But for Peter, what, what matters were these day-to-day -day skirmishes that took place. For instance, again, there in Mark chapter 1, immediately after the healing of this man the whole town gathered at the door of Peter's house. Now, if, if you go to Capernaum, Capernaum is a village. Uh, oftentimes the Bible will refer to it, you know, he went to the city of Capernaum. It's not a city, okay? It's not Gallatin. It's not Springfield. It's not Portland. I mean, we're talking about a little village. And, and when you left the synagogue, you literally would travel about here to the gym over here. And you would have what's called Peter's house. Now they think it's Peter's house because they, they've discovered all kinds of artifacts there. Indicating, first of all, it was a fisherman. Of course, I would want to say to them, nearly everybody that lived there were fishermen. But there was also a sign that it had become a place of worship at one time. And so there is literally an exhibit there called Peter's house. But it's no more than here to the gym away. And so... They leave the synagogue, they go to Peter's house, and the whole town, the whole village gathers around. And notice, Jesus healed many diseases and drove out many demons. Here's that battle taking place. And, and so for Peter, he's like, what happens when Jesus and Satan goes together, you know, up against one another day by day? You turn over literally to two chapters in chapter 3. Again, you have another showdown of where Jesus cast out a demon. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. And you have to, you have to look at what, what Jesus is doing here. I mean, Jesus is, is showing that it's just not people who are possessed by Satan. But it's religious leaders. It's Pharisees. It's teachers of the law. It's preachers who unfortunately have fallen under the influence of Satan and his lies. And now Jesus is fighting up against them. I mean, it's one thing to fight the demon-possessed. Now he's fighting the religious leaders the same way. And Jesus would speak to them in parables. He'd say, listen, how can Satan drive out Satan? 
kingdom divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It'd be good for Americans to hear that one, wouldn't it? I mean, we need to pay attention. If a house is divided, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, it's divided. He cannot stand. And then Jesus says something that for Peter was huge. A lot of times, again, we miss it because we read it too fast. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder his house. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying Satan's the strong man. He's the one who has corrupted the entire world. And why have I come? I've come to tie him up. I've come to bind him. I've come to keep him from being able to do what he's been doing for so long. You turn over two chapters and you have one of the most incredible stories in all the Bible. A story of a man who's demon-possessed. There's literally a legion of demons. That's the name he carries. His name is Legion. And he confronts Jesus. He's a man who lives in the tombs. He cuts himself with rocks. He, he runs around without any clothes on. I mean, they, 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 they cannot contain him in any way. Anytime he's called, he breaks the chains and, and heads back into the tombs. And he encounters Jesus. And you remember the story. It becomes quite humorous as Jesus is basically demanding that the demons come out of him. And they beg Jesus, send us at least into the pigs. And Jesus allows them to go into a herd of pigs, all of which then have a pig stampede. I don't know if you've ever heard of a pig stampede. But you had a pig stampede as they all ran into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. And when the people from the village arrived, here was this man. I love this image of this kind of crazy-looking individual. He's clothed in his right mind. Why? Because Jesus had bound the strong man. And then for all of the Gospels, it's Gethsemane. For Luke, that opportune time, is Gethsemane. And there Jesus goes to pray and to battle Satan one last time. And you know it's a battle because he prays three times. Lord, if there's another way, if there's a, a way I can get by this without drinking this cup, please, Lord, send it. But if I have to drink it, I will. In fact, during these prayers, he goes to Peter, James, and John who are nearby. And he said, why are you sleeping? Pray that you will not fall. And again... <laughs> The, our English Bibles translate it that you won't fall into temptation. But that's not the word that's used there. It's the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. Pray that you won't fall into this severe testing that's coming. And the reason he's praying that is because he alone is the one who's going to face off with all the dark forces and in so doing, by going to the cross, defeating them. Colossians 2.15 Again, one of those verses that, boy, just kind of jumps off the page if you're paying attention. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, having taken their weapons away, he made a public spectacle of them. How? By triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Satan had no concept. Don't you know if Satan known, had known that it was through the cross that Jesus would defeat him, that he would have never inspired Judas to betray him? 
yet you have this divine conspiracy, this incredible conspiracy of God that through Satan mounting his worst attack on Jesus, Jesus would come out victorious on the other side. But that leads us to a very important point. Why did Jesus come? John would just summarize it so simply. He came to destroy the devil's work. But because of that, Satan has done something. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, describes Satan as a dragon. And I want you to notice something that John says about this dragon. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. You have basically there the story of the birth of Jesus and how that Satan tried to destroy what Jesus was trying to do. But he wasn't able to do it. And so what did he do? He went out to wage war against us. And that's what he's doing now. You see, I'm not so sure that we don't find ourselves in one of these charisma. One of these times of incredible testing. And what we find in Scripture, and Paul especially, he says, we're in a war. And, and, and if you think that this is all about a virus, then you simply haven't read the Bible enough. Because what's happening in our world is about what Satan is doing. It's about a war that he's waging against us. And here's Paul, and Paul says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war. Paul, we're in a war? Of course we're in the war. We don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's not about tanks and guns and missiles. He says, on the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God. We can break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. We capture like prisoners of war every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the anointed one. And I've got the NIV up here. This is actually the Passion, the passion Translation. And I really like the Passion Translation. You basically have Paul saying, listen, it is all about a, a battle that's taking place in the hearts and minds of people. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would put it as simple as anybody could. It's time to put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil's scheming, he's scheming against me, and he's scheming against you. You can be assured of it. And so we put on, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against the uh, spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realm. He would go on to describe in, in literally the language of a Roman soldier the armor that we as Christians have, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the shield of faith, and, and the feet shod with the gospel of peace. Those are the weapons we use. You know, we find ourselves in a tremendous political war this year in America. And, and we've got the right and we've got the left. And boy, I mean, it, it's just constant on the news. That's all you hear. And if I had a message to God's people in our nation, if you want to bless America, bless America by focusing on the gospel. It's not what we do in the ballot box. It's what we do when we're talking to our next door neighbor. 
It's not what we do when we send someone to Washington. It's what we do when we send someone into a community to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope for the world, folks, and I hate to break this to you, but the great last great hope for the world is not America. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's why when Paul finishes his section right here, he says, listen, it's time to pray in the Spirit. I don't know if you noticed John Micah's prayer, but he always will pray in Jesus' name and through the power of the Spirit. And, and some people have asked, John Michael, where did you get that? He got it from passages like this right here. You see, we have this wonderful Spirit of God living in us, and He empowers us. And Paul says it's time to pray in that Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. You want to change the world, get on your knees through the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus and go to God the Father, and we'll see change in our world. We're in a battle. It's not a battle that's taking place in Washington. It's a battle taking place in my heart. In your heart. And what you choose to do will determine whether or not we'll win this battle or not. And so I pray, I pray that you'll put on that armor and let's go to war. Uh, again, we, we don't extend the invitation because of our desire to social distance. If you have a need, we're here to help you. My brother Mike Ryan's up here. One of our shepherds is here today. He'd be glad to talk to you. I'd be glad to talk to you. But again, God bless you this week as, as we try to figure out how do we live for Him in this world. At this time, let's all please stand as Blake comes and leads us in one more.